0: All right. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, band. Thank you all. You showed up after Thanksgiving. Man. But it kind of looks like Christmas in here, though. Isn't that a little bit weird? Who is ready for Christmas? Who is not ready for Christmas? What kids are ready for Christmas? Man. Well, I'm super excited. Uh, my name is Brian, if, if we haven't had the, the privilege to meet Um, If I haven't had the privilege to meet you, um, my name is Brian. I'm the worship pastor here. I also oversee regeneration. And uh, this morning, uh, I get to to kick off a five-week Advent series that we're calling, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And if you're an elementary school student here today, I need you to raise your hand. All right, I see you, I see you, I see you. You're definitely not an elementary student, but all right. Well, we're going we're gonna to get to hang out today. So thankful you're here in service with your parents. Uh, we're looking forward to what the Lord is going to speak to us as we spend this time together. So like I said, over the next five weeks, we are working through a series called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Christmas Throughout Scripture. And as you could probably tell by the title, over the next five weeks, we're going to walk through a variety of passages in the Bible that help us see more clearly the story of Christmas. And that the story of Christmas is part of a much bigger story that God is writing. The story of redemption and restoration of all creation. So this morning, we're going to start at the very beginning. So kids, I need your help. What is the first book of the Bible? Genesis. Man, you guys are sharp. So turn, if you would, to Genesis. It's literally the first, second, and third page of your Bible. And we're going to spend our time this morning in Genesis chapter 3. So you can go back real quick on that. Uh, So when I was in college, if you don't know this about me, I was a music education major. And as a music education major, I got to take some really great classes. So world music was really insightful. Modern music was incredibly interesting. Music theory and ear training were hard yet good. But one of my favorite classes was one in which all we did was analyze classical music compositions. Musical masterpieces by the likes of Mozart and Bach and Beethoven. And one thing I learned that many of the longer forms of classical music, the multi-movement forms of classical music, is that many start with a prelude. Have you ever heard of a prelude before? Many types of classical music start with a prelude, which is a short introductory movement that sets the tone for the work as a whole. And in the prelude, we often find short, melodic phrases, little themes. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Right? (laughs) So oftentimes, in the prelude, the, the writer will put in these little themes, we call them motifs, just short little themes, that then over the rest of the movements, they are reintroduced and expanded as the work progresses. Right? A short phrase that's reintroduced and then expanded. That's common in classical music. So in the prelude, you hear a theme for the very first time. And then in the second movement, it's reintroduced. And then in the third movement, it's elaborated upon and expanded upon. And then in the final movement, the theme in its fully expanded form comes full circle in glorious fulfillment. Genesis 1 through 3 is the prelude in the symphony of redemption. And in this prelude, we're introduced to a variety of key themes. We hear them for the very first time that are then reintroduced and expanded upon as each movement progresses forward in the masterpiece that God is writing. So this morning, we're going to speed through Genesis 1 and 2 for context, and then we're going to spend our time focused in on Genesis chapter 3. Because I believe that understanding Genesis 3 more deeply will help us understand more completely, not just the reason for Christmas, but the story of redemption as a whole. So uh, so let's pray, and uh, then we'll get into this today. Father, thank you that you have come to us, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that you are here this morning among us. Lord, I just pray for myself, Lord, that you would just, Calm my heart, focus my mind, relieve any anxieties in me. I pray that you would speak through me, speak to us by your spirit, through your word. And would you open our hearts, each one of our hearts this morning, to receive from you what you have for us through this prelude to the symphony of redemption. So give us eyes to see, Jesus. Give us ears to hear and give us hearts to respond. In your good name we pray, amen. All right, so let's start at the very beginning. It's right up there, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Bible starts with God. God, in the beginning, God. The triune God, Genesis 1 tells us, has existed before anything that is, was. This is his story. He's the author of the story, the composer of the symphony that's been written before it's even been heard. And in creation, we hear the very first note. Genesis 1 and 2 go on to unpack how God created everything out of nothing. And if you're new to the Bible, we learn that our God is an active God. He's intentionally engaged in his creative work. In Genesis 1 and 2 alone, if you go home and read it on your own time, you're going to read at least 20 actions of God. Check it out for yourself. It's intriguing. God creates, he says, he sees, he separates, he calls, and there's literally 15 other action statements attributed to our active God. And right away from the beginning of the Bible, we see that the eternal God is an active God. He's purposefully, intentionally, daily involved in the details of his creation. And if you continue reading Genesis 1 and 2 you'll pick up on this sense that there's a rhythm and order to how God creates. Over and over again you'll read God said and there was God saw it is good repeat God said and there was God saw it is good. There's rhythm and order to how God creates. And these are key motifs to pick on key key themes to pick up on here in the prelude that the eternal active God speaks And sees. And when God speaks, when God speaks, things come to be. And when God sees his creative work, he declares, now that's good. And when God on the sixth day creates humanity in his image and likeness as the crown of creation, he declares that we are very good. So, pre existing God, active in creation, he speaks, and there is he sees and declares, now that's good. These are some key themes we hear in the opening bars of God's prelude, that is Genesis 1 and 2. But then we move into Genesis 3, and if you know the story, something goes horribly wrong. Yet, even in the, met- even in the midst of the mess, God is still actively involved. In Genesis 3, we're introduced to some key themes about how sin works and how God saves. And these themes will be reintroduced and expanded upon all throughout the rest of the Bible. So let's zoom in, grab your Bibles, Genesis 3. We're going to spend our time in here today. And first, we're going to see how sin works. How sin works. We'll start in Genesis 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent who's Satan we learn later in the story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? So let's pause for a second. Let's think about this. We've just said that God has spoken creation into being, and his words create what? Life. God speaks, his words create life, in Genesis 2.16, we didn't look at this, but God has spoken directly to Adam, and his word creates safe boundaries within which human life can flourish. So God's words create life. God's words create safe boundaries. Here in Genesis 3, Satan comes slithering into the story, and we hear him speak for the first time. What will Satan's words create? Kids, let me give you a quiz. Will Satan's words create life in safety? Or will Satan's words create deception and death? What do you think? Man, you guys are sharp. We got some great elementary teachers in this church. We see right out of the gate, the first recorded words of Satan in the scriptures are a direct assault on God's word. We see here that Satan from the very beginning has made it a practice to twist God's words and he often does it oh so subtly. Notice, God said, don't eat from one tree. What does Satan say? Don't eat from any tree. One, any. Two very small words with very different meaning. See the deception in that? But it continues. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good in evil. So Satan's deception here is more than an assault on God's word. It's an attack of God's character. Not just an assault on his word, it's an attack on his character. Interpreted, Satan says, God is holding something back from you. Have you ever believed that lie about God? That he's holding something back from you? This, I think, is Satan's greatest lie. Look at how repressive God is. He's trying to deprive you. He's trying to rob your joy, not give you joy. He's not for you. He's against you. How could you possibly trust a God like that? Satan, even to this day, seeks to discredit God's character by disparaging God's word. He seeks to discredit God's character by disparaging God's word. And on that day so long ago, the lie of the serpent was more appealing than the word of God, and sadly to this day, we too fall prey to the deception of the evil one. And when we do, Romans 1 says, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. So here's the first thing we learn about sin from Genesis chapter 3. Sin starts with the temptation to believe a lie about God. Sin doesn't start with an action. It starts with a temptation to believe a lie about God. This was true for Adam and Eve in the garden, and this is true for us today. And when we believe a lie about God, whenever that lie takes root in our heart, it begins to shape our minds, and it's only a matter of time before we find our actions following what our hearts truly believe. And that's what happens in Genesis 3. Take a look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took it. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So this theme here in the prelude is clear. Believing a lie about God will always lead us into rebellion against God. It's a clear theme. Believing a lie about God will always lead us into rebellion against God. And this rebellion left to ourselves will take us deeper and deeper, faster and faster, like a snowball rolling downhill, and further and further away from a God who is altogether altogether generous, gracious, and good. Adam Adam and Eve believed the lie, God can't be trusted. He's holding something back from me. And their rebellious actions followed. So first thing we see about sin, it starts with the temptation to believe a lie about God. The second thing, if you could throw that up there. When we believe a lie about God, it's only a matter of time before we rebel against God. Number three, which results in shame. Results in shame. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew, they just knew that they were naked. The eyes of both were open to an awareness of their guilt, and they knew that they were naked. This here is the first ever experience of human shame. You know that uh uh-oh moment after you sin? That, That feeling of, oh no, what have I done? Someone has accurately described shame as a hemorrhage of the soul that's just painful and disorienting. It's that feeling of inner ugliness and uncleanness that has the power to smother us with condemnation. You ever felt shame before? Shame's an awareness of our failure deep down in the core of our souls. But even more disturbing, you feel like you're completely exposed That your worst is now on display. So what do we do to try to get rid of this feeling of shame deep down in our souls? Well, we do what Adam and Eve did. At least three things. First, they try to cover up. They try to cover up their shame. Look at verse 7. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So Adam and Eve realizing their nakedness, not just physical nakedness, but spiritually exposed before God and one another, they take it upon themselves to cover up their shame. And we do, family, the exact same thing. Maybe not with fig leaf loincloths, but we put on masks of our own making to cover our shame. In an attempt to cover our shame, to prevent God and others from seeing who we truly are, we put on masks. See if some of these resonate. I've got a list here of some masks that I wear and some masks that I've seen others wear. Uh, So first, I do this one. We, We put on a mask of strength to hide our weaknesses, right? Has anyone ever done that? We put on a mask of humor to hide our insecurities, or a mask of sarcasm or snarkiness to hide that deep down we're really just insecure. We put on a mask of friendliness to avoid the fear of rejection, right? Or we put on a mask of confidence to hide our fear of humiliation. We put on a mask of control to hide the fact that deep down we're really just scared. And sometimes, especially church people, We put on a mask of morality to try to cover our insufficiencies. I've worn all these masks. You've worn many of these masks. Why do we wear masks? Just like Adam and Eve, to try to cover our own shame. Many of us, even this morning, are walking around wearing masks uh, to cover our shame, to avoid feeling exposed, to avoid being truly seen and fully known. But at the end of the day, us mask wearers, don't we just feel like imposters? So we, like Adam and Eve, move on to step two of trying to deal with our own shame. We go deeper, deeper, deeper into the darkness, and we move from covering up to simply running and trying to hide from God himself. Look at verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Look at verse 10. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you, God, in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So let's walk back through this. Believing a lie, rebellious action follows. In fear, we try to hide from God. And notice here that Adam and Eve try to hide from God in the very things that God created. The trees of the garden, which, by the way, if you remember the story, were all good trees, except the one. They are hiding in the good things of God's creation. And we do the same. Rather than running in desperation to God, we try to hide from God in the stuff of his creation. I've been there. I don't know about you. But in the midst of our shame, we think, I really don't want to talk to God right now. Because if he talks to me, he's going to want to talk about stuff that I don't really want to talk about right now. He's going to want to talk about the real me and all the real stuff I'm trying to cover up with my masks. So we try to avoid that conversation with God by running for a while and hiding from God in the stuff of his creation. Sometimes we hide in good things. Sometimes we hide in bad things. And sometimes we just try to hide in plain sight. Right? Where do you like to hide? I'll share with you a few of my favorite hiding spots, okay? I won't expose you right now, but I'll expose myself. So sometimes I literally try to hide in isolation. I just isolate myself from God and other people, right? And this is actually one of my recovery issues. If you came here on a Tuesday night, you'd hear me get up and say, Hi, my name is Brian. I have a new life in Christ. I'm recovering from an addiction to pornography and the tendency to isolate. Isolation has been a huge issue of hiding in my life. And so often I think that as long as I keep my distance from God and his people... I won't have to deal with the stuff that he wants me to deal with right here, right now. But that's probably just me. I'm sure that's none of you. Sometimes we try to hide in isolation. Other times we just try to hide in our hurry, right? Our hurry, nonstop, constant movement, housework, yard work, tinkering in the garage, hiding in busyness or procrastination at the office, in nonstop activities, hiding even in good routines. Routines. Try to hide from God in isolation. We just try to hide from God by keep moving. As long as I keep moving, we won't have to have that talk right now. Or we try to hide in our accomplishments. And, and this is hiding in plain sight, right? Look what I've done. Because as long as you see this, you don't have to see this. We hide in plain sight by putting our best foot forward. Or we try to hide in our achievements or our appearance, or our abilities, which are all good things given to us by God, but we use them to try to hide from God. Or some of us just hide behind stuff, right? Computers, phones, social media and the image we're projecting, Netflix, ESPN, video games, other forms of entertainment. Some of us hide behind fashion, our education, our careers, and even ministry. It is not hard for pastors like myself and many ministry leaders even in this room to try to hide from God by doing good things for God. We try to hide from God by doing good things for God. Whatever it is, far too often we, like Adam and Eve, try to hide from God in the very things that he's created and provided. But there's a third way that we try to deal with our own shame. Uh, We don't just cover up. We don't just hide. We often resort to blame shifting. Right, blame shifting. Any blame shifters in here? You're not alone. Adam and Eve were the first blame shifters. Take a look. Verse 11. God said, he comes to Adam and Eve in their hiding, and he says to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So notice real quick, Adam doesn't just blame Eve, he also blames God. The woman you gave me. He's not unlike us. But the blame game continues. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Or in our terms, we might say the devil made me do it. This is the classic game. The game I far too often play, the game you far too often play, shift the blame to anyone, to anything other than me. Right? Have you ever been there? I wouldn't have done this if you hadn't done that. Adam blames Eve and God. Eve blames Satan. And no one takes responsibility for their lie-believing rebellion against God. And I hope I'm not alone in this, but I far too often do not take responsibility for my own sin. Right? I'd rather try to pin it on someone or something else, and usually that doesn't go well, especially in a marriage. And there is a long chapter in the, the Beatty Book of Marriage devoted to Brian doing this very poorly. I want to blame everything that goes wrong in me on you or on something or something else as long as it's not me, and all that is is trying to hide my shame. So does this cycle look familiar to any of you? If you could throw that next slide up. Does it hit too close to home? In the prelude of Genesis 3, we see for the first time key motifs of how sin works. And these themes will be reintroduced and expanded upon all throughout the rest of the Bible. So before we move on, I just want to summarize this by reading this together. So if you could see this, let's read how sin works. We'll just read through it all. Sin starts with temptation to believe a lie about God. Believing a lie about God, we rebel against God, which results in shame. Attempting to deal with our shame apart from God, we try to cover up our feelings of being exposed. We try to hide from God in the stuff he's given us. And we try to shift the blame to someone, something else, even to God himself. So this is a picture of the cycle of sin in which all humanity is stuck. From the garden forward, Genesis 3 forward, apart from Christ, we are all enslaved to sin. Our hearts are all sick with sin. We are sinners by nature, sinners by choice. Sin is deep within us, plaguing every part of us. We sin in thought, action, motive, word, and deed. We all have a serious problem, and it's called sin and shame. So what do we do? How do we escape Well, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. Amen? And into the darkness of sin shines the bright light of the gospel. In the prelude of Genesis 3, we not only see how sin works, but how God saves. So check out these three life-transforming themes. We really need to see this this morning, how God saves. First, God comes near and God calls out. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This is Genesis 3, verse 8. In the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 9 is key. Don't miss this. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So if you've been part of Melanie Park, you've heard us talk a lot around here about that, that glorious little phrase in Ephesians 2 verse four. "But God? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved." This, in Genesis 3, is the original "but God. But God comes near. The eternal God, who is an active God, pursues his people. He takes the initiative to come to us as we're hiding, covered up in shame. And look what the verse says. But God calls out to the man. And he says, where are you? Now, this question here isn't one of confusion, right? It's not like God just created everything out of nothing, and then he's like, I can't find Adam. Where'd he go? Right? This is not a question of confusion, it's a question of invitation. He's inviting Adam and Eve to consider where they actually are. Maybe in our terms, it would be how are you actually doing? How's that fig leaf loincloth working out for you? How about all those masks? Where are you is an invitation out of hiding into something better. Come back to me, Jesus is inviting. Come into the light where there's life and safety and joy. Perhaps God is inviting you this morning to consider that question for yourself. Where are you? What lies are you believing about God? Have you found yourself, even this, week, even this week, trying to run from God or hide from God? How are you actually doing? And here's the beauty of the gospel, that God comes near in gentleness and grace, and God calls out to us while we are at our worst. He doesn't come near once we've figured out our issues, get our lives together, and button ourselves back up. From Genesis 3 forward, we see that God comes to us while we are in our sin, while we are hiding in shame. At our worst, God comes near and God calls out, inviting us into something far, far better. But God doesn't just come near. God doesn't just call out. He also, number three, takes the initiative to cover our shame. God takes the initiative to cover our shame. And this is a beautiful biblical theme introduced here for the first time of atonement. Atonement. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife Garments of skin and clothed them. So this might be a little strange. Like, where do you get atonement from this? But but let me help have you help me clarify a few things. So, elementary students, here's a quiz for you: which is a better article of clothing? A fig leaf loincloth made by Adam and Eve, handcrafted by Adam and Eve, or a garment of skin made by God Himself? What would you rather wear? Leaves or fur? Fur. Man, you guys are whew, sharp theologians and astute fashionistas. You guys are good. So we've all agreed that the garment of fur is better, right? The garment of skin is better than a fig leaf loincloth. All right, second question. Maybe we need to pull in our hunters here into this. How do you get a garment of skin? You gotta, you gotta shoot the animal. You gotta slaughter the animal. Here in Genesis 3, verse 21. Excuse me. Here in Genesis 3, verse 21 is the first recorded death in the Bible. And it's a death brought about by the plan and provision of God himself with the purpose of covering our shame. In the the prelude of Genesis 3, God takes it upon himself to cover, to atone for Adam and Eve's sin with his very own hands. God kills an animal to provide a better covering. And this, in, in preview form, is a picture of what God would do for us thousands of years later, in the shame-covering, sin-atoning death of Jesus. Taking our sin, covering our shame, Jesus would be killed in our place for our sin like a lamb led to the slaughter to provide a better covering. No longer clothed in any righteousness of our own, think fig leaves, right? But clothed by the perfect righteousness of the sacrificial substitutionary Savior. In my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his atoning blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. All right. Never got choked up in Genesis 3 before. Man. All right, so we've seen so far far that God comes near. God calls out. You can go to the next slide. God covers our shame, and that's good news, right? Do you need a God who comes near, a God who calls out, a God who covers your shame so you don't have to do it on your own? That's good news, but that's not all. There's one more theme introduced here in Genesis 3, and it's in verse 14. Take a look. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, this is key. Don't miss this. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 is what theologians call the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, or gospel preview, if you will. This here in Genesis 3.15 is the first promise in Scripture of the Savior who is to come. It's the advent of the promise of redemption, hinting at the incarnation hinting at the crucifixion the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ Genesis 3:15 this one little verse according to one writer one writer is the acorn of promise that grows into the mighty oak of redemption to another it's the sum and summary of the whole bible this writer states that everything else in the bible flows from these words in Genesis 3:15. Right here at the very beginning, God shares with us the plan that he's had from eternity past. The plan to send Jesus into the world through the offspring of the woman so that one day Christ could crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 3, what we've just looked at, within the context of the first sin, we receive the first promise of the Savior to come. And it's easy to miss, right, because the name Jesus isn't in that text, but he's there. He is the offspring of the woman. And verse 15 goes on to say that there will be war, as one translation says. There will be enmity, strife between Jesus and Satan. This is the great conflict, the battle across the ages that we see throughout the remainder of the scriptures as the story unfolds. And if you know the end, how does the battle end? Well, in preview form, we hear for the first time that he, he will crush your head. The entire symphony of redemption cultivates with this he. It culminates with this he. And fast forward thousands of years later, this he is hanging on the cross, bearing your sin, my shame. And this he declares, it is finished, and this he breathes his last, dead, done. And in that moment, Satan thought that he had won. In his mind, he was thinking, I just killed the supposed Savior Of the world. Mission accomplished, Satan is thinking. That was easier than I thought. So much for this He's plan to rescue and redeem all creation. In that moment, Jesus dead, hanging on the cross, Satan thought that he had won. But what he didn't realize is that he had only bruised Christ's heel. Now, if you've ever had a heel spur or anyone pulled their Achilles in here, um, you know how painful heel wounds can be, right? It hobbles you for a bit. It's just painful. You got to get some medication and treatment. Heel wounds are serious, but they're not deadly. On the other hand, I didn't have a serpent's head, so I brought a soda can. I figured it would have the same effect. No one survives a crushed head. This is a fatal blow. And that's exactly what happened three days later when the crucified Christ emerges from the grave. Death came back to life. Satan defeated definitively. Head crushed. Game over. God wins. Through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has reversed the curse of sin and shame from the garden. And now it's Satan, our enemy, who is exposed in shame. Take a look at Colossians 2 verse 15. He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ on the cross, the he, to which Genesis three fifteen points. And check out 1 John 3, verse 8. This is probably not a verse you put on your Christmas card this year, but maybe it's worth considering for next year, okay? Let me show you why. 1 John 3, verse 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was, so pause, why was Jesus born of a virgin in a manger on that night so long ago? The reason the Son of God appeared was To destroy the works of the devil, to destroy all the deception, to overcome the power of all those lies throughout human history, to free us from sin and shame. Jesus came to destroy these works of the devil. So, family, the, the prelude promises we've seen this morning in Genesis 3 are the present promises we celebrate at Christmas. And as Christians, we celebrate throughout the year that Jesus, our Emmanuel, you could throw up the next slide, God with us has come near. And Jesus is calling out. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he has covered our shame and he will crush the head of Satan underneath his feet. On the cross, Satan was defeated definitively, and one day his work will be destroyed in full forever. So, family, these are the Advent promises of Genesis 3 that we get to remember and rejoice in together. So, Chris and the band, why don't you guys come on up? How do we respond? I didn't want to give you things to do today. I just wanted to proclaim the gospel from Genesis 3 and let the Lord do his work in you. But how might we respond in light of all that God has done? And simply, I think it's this. Let's remember and rejoice. Let's remember what he has done for us in this Advent season. Allow our hearts to be moved with joy and gladness in light of all that he's done for us. And may this Advent, may Emmanuel, God with us, may he capture our hearts more completely in amazement and awe more than ever before. So to help us do this, uh, we're gonna close in a song that you know well, but we've written some additional Advent verses to take us back to the manger and then walk us through the story of redemption. So family, let's stand together and remember and rejoice.